Good morning, everybody. It is um, really good to be here with you all. Um, Unfortunately, I haven't hit all of the sermons in this series on the fruit of the Spirit. I spent a lot of time upstairs either with helping volunteer to take care of some of your kids or just trying to untangle my own kids from me so that I can be here with the grown-ups. So it's really exciting. It's really cool to be here with you all, with the grown-ups, and nobody touching me. Um, So... so, I'm going to go ahead and jump in, even though I get to be comfortable without Kazami, I'm going to jump in with a kind of uncomfortable topic, um, and that is high school, in particular high school yearbooks. This past winter, I discovered what author Marie Kondo calls the the life-changing magic of tidying up. So if you don't want to read the whole book, I'll summarize it for you in one sentence. Throw out all the junk in your house that doesn't spark joy. Um, So it was evidence from the thick layer of dust that had accumulated on my stack of high school yearbooks sitting on the bottom shelf in my bedroom that it had been a really long time since they had sparked any joy in my life. Um, It might be true that they never really sparked all that much joy in my life to begin with. Um, So for all of us, you might have had a different kind of experience in high school. For some of us, you think about fun activities, teachers that you loved, um, being um, just in a carefree time of your life. But for other people, you don't really think of it as being quite as carefree. You might think about battles with acne, Algebra 2, and exclusive cliques that you didn't get to be a part of, or broken hearts. So it might have just been something you were waiting to get over with, couldn't wait till it was just a distant memory. So despite what your experience was, everybody has memorialized for all of time the high school yearbook to, uh, to, to give us remembrances of what that high school time was. So whatever your experience was, good or bad, we have this book that shows and shows off all of the things that we admire the most. Um, The people's names and faces that show up the most in the yearbook are often the people that have the qualities and the characteristics that we want the most. So the most talented, the most popular. There's even a special category that they usually do for seniors, um, the senior superlatives for the people that really, really demonstrate what it is the most likely to succeed, the most authentic, or I'm sorry, the most athletic or the best dressed. So I myself didn't make it into my high school yearbook for any of these things, um, but some people who are a part of this church did, and they were really good sports, and they decided to let me um, make up some fun visuals today um, to see to see, um, to see see what they featured in their yearbook. So um, let's see who some of these brave souls are. The first one, we have Joy Howard. She was the girl with the coolest car. Nice. Charity Mead was the most studious. Um, this one is not going to surprise anybody at all. Katie Johansson, most hardcore school spirit. You heard on there. Um, and we have, this is someone who doesn't come to our church anymore. It would be a long commute from the West Coast, but Rachel Ruzma, she still participated. She was the one with the best laugh. Who's surprised about that? Um, and finally, the best voice belonged to this guy, Andrew Richardson. So, lots of fun. So, among all of these really impressive, sometimes humorous categories... There's one that I don't think ever made it into the high school yearbook. There's the one that never came up, I never saw recognized, and that is the most kind. Um, While we all might agree that in its essence, kindness seems like a good thing, we don't treat it like it's a very impressive thing. Kindness is synonymous to some of us as niceness, as in, thanks for the sweater, Grandma. It's really nice. Um, So maybe you might even be skeptical of of kindness being a good thing at all. Some people might think of it as a sort of weakness. 
You might think that kind people are the sort of people who get taken advantage of really easily. They're the doormat who just doesn't know how to stand up for themselves. So if we have a job and it's important for it to get done, who do we call? We call the go-getter. Because when something fails, we usually write it off by saying, well, it's the thought that counts. Because we're recognizing kindness as a respectable enough state of the heart, but we don't really give it any credit for being powerful when it comes to actions and when it comes to results. So I'm here this morning to challenge all of those notions. Of all of the fruits of the Spirit, I kind of think that kindness might just be the most underrated. It's kind of the dark horse of the fruits of the Spirit. So if you consider kindness to be merely a sentiment or a mildly impressive personality trait, I'm going to contend that kindness, when it's fueled by the Holy Spirit, is a mighty and an active force that has the power to change lives, and even to the extent that it can restore life to someone who is as good as dead. So first things first. We might not even feel like we can quite put our finger on what kindness is. Is it a feeling? Is it an action? Is it a characteristic? The answer is yes. So let's take a look at where kindness shows up in the Bible and see if by peering a little closer at it, we can get a better understanding about what this fruit of the Spirit is all about. Um, The passage that we've been looking at for the past couple of weeks where the fruit of the Spirit is listed, that comes from the New Testament, which is written mostly in Greek. But a greater portion of the Bible, all the stuff that happened before Jesus was born, we call it the Old Testament, and it's written in Hebrew. So while we're going to come back around to unpacking the Greek meaning of the word kindness, let's start by looking back at the Hebrew word for kindness that we find in the Old Testament. So the Hebrew word that linguists have translated as kindness is spelled C-H-E-S-E-D, and it's pronounced hesed. So if you're familiar with the spelling of halibred or Hanukkah, that silent C at the beginning will make a little more sense to you. So sometimes hesed is translated as kindness, and other times it becomes a hyphenated loving kindness. It's one single word, but it packs a lot of meaning into it. In the Bible, when we come across hesed, it's almost always a description of God's kindness towards his creation. Occasionally we see stories where God's kindness towards is imitated by one person towards another person, but in its essence, hesed tells us how God feels about us, how he acts towards us, and what his character is like. So how does he feel about us? He loves us, right? That one's obvious. But Hesed is not merely a feeling. It is faithful love that is put into action. It's love that is persistent and unconditional. It's love that keeps on fulfilling its end of the bargain, whether or not love is appreciated or reciprocated. Hesed is tenderhearted. Hesed lays it all on the line. Hesed is generous and merciful. In short, Hesed is someone with all of the best character, feeling all the strongest feelings, and directing those feelings into outrageous actions to demonstrate faithful care for the recipient. So that's not quite the watered-down niceness that we think of when we often think of kindness. This is especially true when you consider what a needy lot we are as humans. Even the greatest optimist with the strongest prescription rose-colored glasses couldn't watch the news for the past six weeks and not realize that we have a pretty serious problem as a species. I can't be the only one who's come to tears or just found myself yelling out loud or wanted to crawl up in a ball under my covers just because of the violence and the despair that I've seen in our world and in our nation recently. The Bible describes this plague that is uh, infesting our nation and our world as sin. 
It's missing the mark of the perfection that God intends for us to enjoy. And boy, have we missed that mark. But it's in this mass and in this state that God comes to rescue us. Instead of rejecting us all, instead of literally saying, to hell with you, he says, how can I give you up? It's a rhetorical question. He can't. His kindness, his hesed, demands that he keep on loving, he keep on pursuing, and he keep on rescuing. That, that is kindness. Now, even though God is this picture of um, perfect and ultimate kindness, it still might feel a little inaccessible for us to try to model ourselves after the creator of the universe. Let's take a look at a story from the Bible, and let's see how this godlike kindness gets played out in a human interaction. It might have been completely foolhardy of me to choose a story from the Bible where one of the main characters is a man named Mephibosheth. Um, so let's say it all together now so that I can practice it one more time and you can empathize with me just how difficult this is to say. Ready? One, two, three. Mephibosheth. Okay. So let me give you a little bit of the backstory about today's scripture before we read it. But I promise you we're going to get back to Mephibosheth. You're going to get to hear me say it at least a dozen times. Okay, as a nation, Israel's first king was a man named Saul. Saul was handsome, he was rich, he was very kingly, but he eventually displeased God. Because of God's displeasure with Saul, his own son Jonathan was not ever going to get to be king. It's pretty sad for Jonathan. He was actually a pretty decent guy. Um, Saul, however, just became increasingly unstable. He was prone to fits of rage, but he was calmed down when he could enjoy some nice harp music. So, enter on the scene a young shepherd and musician named David. David became Saul's chief music therapist, if you will. So David also was gaining notoriety at this time for his military pursuits. Even if you've never picked up the Bible, everyone has likely heard about David and Goliath. He's the little guy that killed the great big giant. So he was becoming much more well-known. In this time, Saul and, I'm sorry, Saul's son Jonathan and David became dear, dear friends. The way the Bible describes it is that they were one in spirit with each other, and each one loved the other as much as he loved himself. So this was just a friendship for the history books. They made a promise to each other, a faithful promise of friendship, Um, and it's a special kind of promise called a covenant. The covenant is not like a pinky swear. Covenant goes even beyond, I swear on my mother's life. Covenant essentially means, may I be killed and dismembered if I fail to keep my commitment to you. Pretty big deal. So some of you are already familiar with this story, especially since Renee just shared about David last week. But I'm kind of jealous if there's anybody here who's not familiar with the story because here is the amazing twist. David was the very man that God chose to replace Saul. David is the one who would take the throne instead of Jonathan. The Bible's not entirely clear when Jonathan and Saul explicitly figured this out or if they really did, but they had a sense. And Saul grew just increasingly... Jealous, he was threatened by David and was very murderous towards him. Meanwhile, though, Jonathan remembered his covenant with David and his friendship with him. He warned David of plans that Saul had to murder him several times and spared David's life. As it turns out, Saul and Jonathan both died on the same day in the same battle. As word got out that David was going to be taking the throne in the the light of Saul and Jonathan's death, um, Saul and Jonathan's family fled. They fled for their lives. It was custom in that time that when a new dynasty took over, all of the descendants of the other dynasty would be killed off so that there wouldn't be anyone to threaten to take over the throne. So just to be sure, 
Saul's family and Jonathan fled and left. Five-year-old Mephibosheth was part of that exodus. The nurse that carried him and was running dropped him. And in that process, it left him crippled in both of his legs. So that's the backstory that you need to know to pick up where our scripture picks up a couple decades later. So let's read it. Then David said, Is there yet anyone left in the house of Saul that I may show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant in the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. The king said, Is there not yet anyone in the house of Saul to whom I may show the kindness of God? And Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan who is crippled in both feet. So the king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, Behold, he is in the house of Maker, the son of Amiel, in Lodabar. Then King David sent and brought for him from the house of Maker, the son of Amiel, from Lodabar. Mephibosheth, the son of David, the son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and prostrated himself. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he said, Here is your servant. David said to him, Do not fear, for I will surely show kindness to you for the sake of your father Jonathan, and will restore to you all the land of your grandfather Saul, and you shall eat at my table regularly. Again, he prostrated himself and said, What is your servant that you should regard a dead dog like me? Then the king called Saul's servant Ziba and said to him, All that belonged to Saul and to all of his house I have given to your master's grandson. You and your sons and your servants shall cultivate the land for him, and you shall bring in the produce so that your master's grandson may have food. Nevertheless, Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall eat at my table regularly. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord the king commands, his servant, so your servant will do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table as one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who loved and lived in the house of Ziba were servants to Mephibosheth. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate at the king's table regularly. Now he was lame in both feet. Uh, this passage is filled with proper nouns, with people and places. It would be easy to read over it just as one more story in the Bible and to miss the profound nature of David's kindness to Mephibosheth. So let's just focus in on a couple key components of the story. First, as we already said, Mephibosheth had every reason to be laying low and hiding out from King David. Even though he was born into royalty, he was living in a city whose name means no pasture. It was desolate. It was far away, literally and figuratively, from the home that he had been born into. Being lame in both feet in that time and culture was more life-altering than it would be today when we have medical advances, we have social supports, and accessible infrastructure that gives people of all abilities the chance to live independent lives. For Mephibosheth, there was nothing he could do to provide for himself. He had to live in another man's household. His station in life couldn't get much lower. So when David sent for him, he very well might have figured that this was as low as it was possibly going to get, and David was going to just finally end his life. So when he approaches David, he prostrates himself, as if a man who's already lame in both feet and had to be carried into the king's presence might as well just go ahead and make himself a little lower just to cower before this mighty king. But then David says his name, Mephibosheth. I wonder if at this moment David remembers the toddler son of his best friend. Mephibosheth certainly wouldn't have remembered David, but it wouldn't be a stretch, too far of a stretch of the imagination to think that David had memories of his heart, in his heart, 
of his dear friend's young son, maybe when his legs were first learning to walk, back before they were broken in his escape for his life. So David says, Mephibosheth, don't be afraid. Even after he hears that David intends to be kind to him, Mephibosheth is still skeptical. He can't understand why the king would want to be kind to him, and he responds, I'm nothing more than a dead dog. Now, that culture did not think about canines the same way that our culture did. In our culture, we invite them into our house. We give them names. Um, Some people even buy their dogs outfits and carry them around in their purses and take them to doggy daycare. Um, We cry when they die, whether it's in real life or just in a movie. Cartoon dogs could make every single one of you cry. Um, But that is not how dogs were regarded in the time period that Mephibosheth was brought before David. Dogs were reviled. They were just dirty scavengers. Calling somebody a dog in that culture was a cruel insult. And worse, he called himself a dead dog. This was a culture where if you even touched a dead body, you were considered unclean for seven days. You couldn't have contact with other people, and you couldn't have any contact with worshiping God even. So Mephibosheth was telling David, I'm good for nothing. I'm as useful as a corpse, and I'm as pleasant to have around as a rotting dead animal. But David persisted. He had made a covenant with his friend Jonathan, and because of this, he was compelled out of his love for Jonathan to show kindness to Jonathan's son. And this is the extent of his kindness. He was going to restore everything that had belonged to Saul that had been taken away from his family. He would appoint servants to take care of Mephibosheth, to, make, to take care of the land so that his family could receive all of the produce and all of the fruit from that, from that harvest. Um, and Mephibosheth would have a standing invitation at the king's table not just as a guest, but treated like his own son. So this is kindness. This is Hesed. This is a man who was as good as dead, but then he becomes a regular figure at the king's table. But Elizabeth, you might be thinking, this is all well and good for David and Mephibosheth, but I don't have those kind of riches and power. I don't think that I can show kindness in a way that would make somebody feel like they came from the brink of death and now they were living the good life. I get it. Trust me. If you've ever eaten dinner at my house, in the chaos that ensues there, you would not feel like a standing invitation to dinner would be a blessing. It might be a punishment. (laughs) So none of us has the riches and the power at our disposal that King David did, but we all have a remarkable degree of power when it comes to the people that we're closest to in our lives. We know all their faults and their tender spots. We can often build them up or tear them down with a few words or even just a wordless expression. We have tremendous power to make or break the people in our lives by the way that we deal with them, especially the way that we deal with their weaknesses. I love how this portion of scripture ends. Just in case they didn't say it enough times, the very last thing they say, so Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem for he ate at the king's table regularly. Now he was lame in both feet. So just in case you forgot how prominently that detail played in the story, the last word again is that Mephibosheth was lame in both feet. He lived with a constant reminder that he was once running for his life and as good as dead. But as he was wined and dined as royalty, he couldn't forget where he came from. It didn't bring him shame, though. He still enjoyed the full rights of belonging to David's family, lame feet and all. David's table provided that safety and that sense of belonging where it was okay to be imperfect. I love a scripture from Isaiah 42. It prophesies about what Jesus will be like, and this is what it says about him. It says, A bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not snuff out. We all have these areas in our life where we just feel bruised and we feel broken. 
We have places that are just vulnerable. And if I asked you to think about it right now, you could come to that spot and think about that place in your own life that is so tender. When these wounds get exposed, an unkind word aches unbearably. There's an expression you've probably heard before. Hurt people hurt people. It's so easy to act out of our wounds and to protect ourselves by lashing out at other people. But I think the, likewise, the opposite is also true. Healed people heal people. So we have this chance to be demonstrators of God's magnificent loving kindness. as people who were once dead in our sin, but who've been brought back to life by God's loving kindness. Here also is another aspect to consider. Well, King David... He was known throughout his kingdom at that time. He's known throughout history, one of the most widely recognized names in history. There's something that we have as citizens of the world in the year 2016 that he never could have imagined in, the wildest dream, in his wildest dreams. We're living in the most technologically advanced and globally connected time in human existence. So think of it. Not only can you video chat with a stranger on the other side of the world, but you can reconnect with your best friend from first grade who you haven't even spoken to in decades. Access to unprecedented repositories of information on the World Wide Web and social networking all in the palm of our hands has bestowed upon us a kind of power that women and men of history could never have imagined. This kind of power, in effect, can make us more godlike than ever. We can show kindness to a friend who is mourning the loss of a parent. We can donate funds to causes that touch our hearts with a couple of clicks or a couple of swipes. We can stay up to date on the ordinary details of people's lives so that when we see them in person, we can interact with them in even more personal ways. And of course, you all know this can be used for evil just as much as it can be used for good. We can cut out and segregate ourselves from people who hold different opinions than us. We might find ourselves writing off people in real life because their on-screen words have hurt or offended us. Hurt people hurt people. Healed people heal people. Social media is full of bruised reeds and smoldering wicks. Technology gives us the tools that can magnify our ability to express godlike kindness. Your well-timed words might restore someone to life who feels like they're on the brink of death. And it's not just these people who are closest to us. It's not all of our virtual friends on the World Wide Web that we can impact with kindness. Oftentimes, very small acts of kindness towards people passing through on the periphery of our lives can add up to deliverance for them. Let me tell you a story about a man that I know. We're going to call him Hank. Growing up, the only consistent message that Hank remembers learning from the religious people in his life was that once in, you're going to hell. That didn't make God seem very appealing. At best, God was up in heaven doing all his God stuff, and he had no interest in what was going on in Hank's life. He spent most of his 20s addicted to drugs, in and out of both jail and rehabs, even at times living in abandoned houses. One of the rare times that he did have a legitimate roof over his head, it was because of the kindness of a friend's parent, a household with a Christian mother. For the very first time, he began to think that maybe people who acted nice weren't faking it. Something in him began to soften, maybe even hope. However, even after that brush with kindness, Hank still found himself back on the street. One night, a guy named Ed, who ran the local AA clubhouse and makeshift rehab there, pulled up beside Hank in a truck and offered him a place to come and get clean and sober. I'll come in tomorrow, Hank promised. The guy in the front seat, the AA groupie, yelled out, a lot can happen in 24 hours, and he was right. Sure enough, within a few hours, Hank was sitting in the back of a police cruiser again on his way to jail. But 
In his pocket was Ed's phone number. So from jail, Hank called Ed. Ed picked up. Um, he picked up not just that first time, but he picked up time after time. They talked almost every day. Sometimes Ed would just give him a really hard time and say things like, oh, man, I just dropped my cheesesteak. Oh, no, the dog's eating it. You're not going to cheesesteak in jail. It's not the conversation you want to hear. But mostly what Ed said was, there's a place for you when you get out. There's a better and different life for you. Who knows why this time was different, but Ed showed up at court to, court to vouch for Hank. And when these charges were dismissed, Hank authentically wanted to give up this old way of life and, and do something better and different. So he knew also that he better show up at Ed's place because he, if he didn't, he would end up right back in jail. Um, there still ended up being one more hiccup along the way. En route to Ed's place, Hank ended up getting high one more time and staying in an abandoned house that night. He woke up that next morning, and he was so worried that maybe Ed had called his probation officer and there would be a warrant out for his arrest. He just walked around the streets trying to figure out what to do and ran into his friend Potsy. Hank was getting so... Um, frustrated and, and so worried about if there was a warrant out for him, and Patsy just got irritated with hearing about it. So he hand-delivered Hank to Ed's front door himself, even though he could not stand Ed. It took countless acts of minor kindness over many years to deliver Hank to that door. But what was waiting for him on the other side was the culmination of it all. Someone to tell him the simple truth that God is love. That eventually turned into a love affair with Jesus and 11 years of sobriety and counting. A wife and three pretty good-looking kids, a chance to lead other people to the healing that he had received, and a really awesome community of faith to be, called, to be a part of called Mosaic Community Church. So you guessed it. Um, this isn't really a story about Hank. This is a story about Frank, my husband. And I'm so humbled every time I think about all the people who played a part in his rescue. It took buttoned-up church people, it took recovering alcoholics, and even a guy named Potsy to dribble out kindness in little portions to him that eventually reached a tipping point. Every little bit counts. Every bit that you express has the power to push someone towards that threshold of a new life. So if you're feeling inspired but maybe a little overwhelmed by this idea of being as kind as God, here's the best news of all. The power to be kind does not merely depend on you and your own ability and your own resources. We're talking about kindness because we're in this sermon series about the fruits of the Spirit. Um, and this is the things that, that become evident. Fruits of Spirit are the things that start to show up in our lives because the Holy Spirit is active and alive inside of us. One of the best ways that I ever heard this described was by a pastor and a mentor of mine in a sermon that's just stuck with me for years. Here's how he described it. So have you ever tried to fly a kite just by holding it and running as fast as you can? It's not a windy day. It's pretty exhausting. It doesn't work very well. But compare that with the experience of flying a kite on a windy day when the airstream pulls your kite higher and higher and holds it up in the air. Do you think you would find yourself exhausted flying a kite that way? So one more, uh, forgive me for getting linguistic on you all over again, but the Greek word that's used for spirit when we're talking about Holy Spirit is translated as breath or wind. So a life that is powered by the Holy Spirit is like that kite that's swept up in the clouds higher and higher, not because of the extraordinary effort of the person, but because of the power of this invisible force. So that's the power that is available to all of us, the very nature of God, the perfect example of kindness, 
takes up residence inside of us. We don't just have to muster it up on our own. We get to be distributors of his magnificent kindness. So one more thing. I promise to come back to that Greek word for kindness, the one that we find in the New Testament when we're talking about the fruit of the Spirit. I think this is really cool and totally worth spending some time on, even though it's a little warm in here, the story's going to stick with you. It's a really cool story to go with it. So if you're up for one more foreign language, fun fact, the Greek word that gets translated as kindness is the word krestasis. The short definition of krestasis is listed, listed as goodness, benignity, and kindness. Goodness kind of speaks for itself. Kindness, I think we've covered. But when I saw that, I had to reread again and do a Google search when I came across that word, benignity. In truth, when I first read it, I actually saw the word benignity. Um, and so I was thinking of the yummy fried dough blanketed in powdered sugar that you can get in New Orleans, which really makes sense to me because fried dough with sugar on it is totally one of my love languages. Um, <laughs> So, but once I, got the, once I got the spelling right and I Googled it, I realized that the word benignity came from the same root word as benign. I've only ever heard that word as it refers to a tumor. Um, so I can't say that I've ever considered tumors to be a good thing. And if you go back to where we started, the idea that kindness is okay enough but not that impressive, I guess it's kind of how I would think of a benign tumor. It's just hanging out there. It's not hurting anybody, but it's certainly not adding anything to your life or doing anything good. Sounds just about right, right? All right. Well, something happened recently that gave me a totally different way of thinking about it. My dad has a good friend named Larry. Um, Larry was just recently diagnosed with colon cancer, and we were down visiting my parents around the same time. Larry has really poor health care coverage, a really high deductible, and basically no current income. The best case scenario was that he could go eyeball deep in debt to get some treatment that could possibly work, but it was not going to be a, a pleasant scenario at all. But in the midst of this really awful diagnosis and lack of resources, Larry got really tremendous news. His wealthy sister had actually recently created a trust fund so that anybody in their family who had any kind of health issues could take advantage of it and have all their needs, needs met. I mean, really wealthy. Don't worry about it at all. So all of his expenses would be covered for him to travel to get a consultation with another doctor at Memorial Sloan Kettering, an esteemed cancer treatment center in New York City. His nurse daughter handpicked a doctor, and he got an appointment. And that was the wonderful news that my dad shared with me over coffee one morning when we were visiting there. By dinner time the same day, there was an update on the situation. As a part of Larry's consultation with the second doctor, they went ahead and did another set of diagnostic tests. The scopes re revealed a bunch of polyps just like before, um, but when the biopsy results returned, one single word changed everything. Benign. How kind. Not a death sentence, not a mountain of debt, not a reason for tears and despair. Larry's family was and still is elated. They thought their loved one was as good as dead, but now they can expect to enjoy him for years to come. This is kindness. Expecting death, but experiencing rescue. This is the power of the Holy Spirit that he wants to impart to you. You might not have a trust fund, you might not have a royal table, but you have a mouth, and Scripture tells us that the tongue has the power of death or life. Scripture also tells us that it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. As you tell your own story of your life that's been redeemed from the grave, 
you can be a vessel that's overflowing with God's kindness, and it spills out and refreshes the spirits of other people who need the rescue that he offers. You don't have to be the source, but you're invited to be the conduit. So here are a couple of action steps that you can take if you've been convinced that kindness really is something spectacular and you want to make more space for it to show off in your life. First, think of all the names that you've heard today. David, Jonathan, Mephibosheth, Hank, and Larry. These are all names and stories that you won't soon forget. Information doesn't always stick with us the same way that stories do. Think about it. There's teachers whose classes that you sat in for hours of your life and you do not remember a lick of information that they taught you, but you likely remember some of the stories they told. I was thinking about this when I went to bed last night and I remember a college professor and I was like, yeah, he had two cats and their names were stupid and evil because he would tell us stories about stupid and evil. I don't remember anything else, but he had two cats. Um, Stories are really great ways to capture and contain important truths in a way that stick with us and we remember them. So how about this week? Make it a point to expose yourself to some stories that will encourage you about how impressive kindness really is. Ask a friend or a coworker, what's the kindest thing anyone has ever done for you? And listen to their story. In the midst of all the pain and the terror that mankind has been facing in recent weeks, some good stories about kindness could really help us to remember that our rescuer is greater than the forces of destruction that are plaguing our world. Next. This is something that I found to be personally helpful. I guess I just have to squeeze in one more little linguistic treasure here in the end. I promise this is really the last one. The English word kind stems from the same source as kin, as in family, or kinder, as in child. So think back about Mephibosheth as that kindergarten-age boy. If David had long since put him out of mind, I have to imagine that a memory of that small boy would soften his heart. When you struggle with feeling kindness towards someone, try picturing them in your mind as the age of a kindergartner. For example, look at these two. (laughs) I feel certain that everyone in this room has strong feelings of distaste for at least one of these individuals. Am I right? Okay. But check out these two. Softened much? Here's how I use this tactic. When I'm supremely ticked off at my husband, I choose to think about this little boy and how can I help but soften. When I read a stranger's hateful trolling comment on Facebook, I still haven't learned, never read the comments. Um, I click on their names to see their profile, to see their face, maybe even see a picture of their kids or their grandkids. It softens you. It's a total kindness enabler. Another simple way to make room for kindness that you can try this week When you have somewhere to go, just try leaving home 15 minutes earlier than you need to, maybe even with five extra dollars in your pocket. Purposely create wide margins in your time so that you have time to hold the door for people, to let somebody else go ahead of you, to grab a treat for a coworker, or just have a conversation with a panhandler. Just try to smile at as many people as you see along the way. And finally, just ask the Holy Spirit to fill you with his kindness so it seeps out of all of your pores. Let's just do that now. Let's pray together and ask for kindness to remain as impressive as it feels to us right here and now, and that he would enable us to bear kindness that can be the good fruit for other people to enjoy. Let's pray. God, we just thank you for your kindness towards us. And we've said that a million times. We've used that word a million times and not really understood what it meant, but God, you've rescued us. You just took us from death and you brought us to glorious life with awesome promises of belonging to you and sitting at your table. 
So God, I just pray that you would um, fill us with your Holy Spirit, that kindness would just fall off of us like fruit that's too ripe to hold on anymore, and that other people would pick it up and enjoy it. God, we ask that you would help us in the, in the areas where it's hardest for us to be kind, and you would impress us with the results of our attempts to be kind so that we could just be more and more impressed with you and your power. Help us just to be vessels of your power. Help us just to see lives rescued, literally and figuratively, all around us because of your goodness expressed through us, your kindness. Pray these things and commit them in the name of Jesus. Amen.